Good morning. It's an absolute uh, treat to see you. It really is. Bonjour, Laurent. Uh, nice to see you. And um, when I was um, getting ready for this morning's talk, I was looking on the internet, always a good source of uh, stories and information, and I found a piece of, um, of research, or a summary of a piece of research from America, and I've absolutely no, no reason to believe that it, it uh, is, the trends it reflects aren't um, repeated here in England. And that is a comparison between the year 1900 and the year 2000 in terms of percentages of people um, in the population in America who were engaged, employed um, in various sectors of the economy. For example, uh, in government in 1900, uh, all levels of government, there were about just over 4%, and that, that quadrupled into 2000 to just over 16%. In the services sector, just over 25%, more than doubled in 100 years to uh, 62.5%. Similarly, goods, um, uh, well, it's not similarly, it was different actually, it went from 27 and it dropped. From, from, so the, the good sector of the economy fell by about 8-9%. But the most staggering and the most outstanding difference between the year 1900 and the year 2000 was in the agriculture sector. At 19, in 1900, it was just over uh, 43% of the population in agriculture, in the United States of America, 43%. A hundred years later, in the year 2000, it had dropped to a minuscule 2.4%. So this is a mega trend, an enormous change. And the point that, uh, the reason I, I mentioned that is because um, there's an enormous difference between our society and the, so the society in Roman Palestine. Theirs was an agrarian society and ours definitely isn't. The reason that that huge change took place in North America was the impact of the Industrial Revolution and the impact of mechanisation, crop breeding and uh, the whole industrialisation of agriculture. And that's the, the reason why such a huge change took place. And because Jesus' audience was an agrarian society, they would have picked up on the assumptions that he was making and the imagery that he was using in a way that we simply aren't. So in order really to get to grips with Jesus' discussion and Jesus' imagery, we need to have a sort of little bit of a Janet and John course in agronomy and crop management, which I don't propose to do. But it's a story, isn't it? It's a story about four soils, one of which produces a fruitful harvest. So fruitfulness... Tom, I just wish you were here, mate. I could have listened to you all morning, but that was lovely, that was wonderful. But I found, I found in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to, to the Galatians, a super-duper little summary about actual fruitfulness. And it was Paul talking to the Galatians, and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and he describes it as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And he goes on to say that we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
So that's the fruit, if you like, a summary of the fruit. And that is the outcome that God, God wants to see. And it doesn't, it does happen. It doesn't happen in all of the cases, but at least one of the four. And as Dave, if you were here last week, Dave told us uh, how the story divides and segregates his, his hearers in this message of the kingdom. It, it splits them up into categories. They're not the same, and, and there's only one that's fruitful. And the scene is set. And the farmer, in verse 3, he goes out to sow his seed. I made the point that our society is very different from the Roman Palestine society. Not only is that the case, but our agriculture is completely different. This is all pre-Jethro Tull, which is not a pop group. (laughs) You are awful. Jethro Tull, I will remind you, was a very interesting man. He lived um, not very far away from here. He was born um, second half of the 1600s in Bradfield in Berkshire, well, Basildon actually, and he grew up in Bradfield, a neighbouring village. Uh, he went to uh, Oxford University, poor man, and matriculated at St John's College. And he got ill, and he, he got some kind of pulmonary infection, possibly tuberculosis, I don't know. And he was sent away like rich people were in those days, uh, rich landed people, they were sent to the south of France. And probably as he was walking along the uh, Avenue des Anglais in Nice, taking in the Mediterranean sunshine and sea air, he started to think about farming and how he could improve and uh, increase the productivity of his own farming estate. And he invented the seed drill. This transformed farming. So, the business that the farmer in our parable uh, is engaged in is totally different from what happened post-Jethro Tull up to now. The monsters you see going across the the arable fields uh, today, um, obviously they're nothing like what Jethro Tull invented, but his was the step change which transformed agriculture. So there was control then, after Jethro Tull, onto where the seed was going. The farmer knew precisely where the seed was going. This was not the case with our Palestine farmer in Jesus' day. A farmer goes out to sow his seed and it's a random process. It goes everywhere. The farmer had a satchel or a box on his hip, leather um, strap over his shoulder, and he would pace his field as regularly as he could, um, with, re- with reference to where he was chucking his seed and it would be a very random process. He would try to make it as regular as he could but it was, um, a, in the final analysis, a very random uh, process. And Jesus tells the disciples in, ver- in verse 37, admittedly it's in a, succe- a, succe- a succeeding uh, parable, that it is Jesus who sows the good seed. Okay, so you'll find in verse 37 it's another parable I've read the, some commentary about this and I'm, I'm very happy that, it, that the first commentator I read actually agreed with me that it was Jesus who was sowing the seed so I didn't bother to look at any more. But, <laughs> but I think we can go with that, can't we? Um, so it is Jesus who sows the seed in our story. So we know what fruitfulness is and we know who the sower is. Uh, Now, the price of a tonne of wheat nowadays, it's gone down a bit these last couple of weeks, goodness knows why, because the harvest is proving very difficult, but it's about 80 quid a tonne delivered. Um, If you want to buy a tonne of wheat seed, 
you generally have to pay about three times that because it's got to be cleaned and treated and so forth and it's got to be the very best and that, that dynamic would have been repeated in, uh, in Jesus' time as well that it would have been the very best grain that was being used as seed corn because he wanted good levels of germination and the farmer would have, he wouldn't have just gone and got any old seed he would have actually made sure it was the best so it is actually something which is very precious and Jesus tells us that the seed, he gives us the straightforward interpretation. The seed, says Jesus, is the message about the kingdom. Now a contemporary of Jesus, um, Peter, Apostle Peter, uh, somebody who spent a lot of time with Jesus, and he writes in a letter to the fledgling Christian church, he says, he gives us a brilliant little, uh, a brilliant little kind of, um, potted gospel, if you like, a potted message of the kingdom, a little sample of seed, if you like. And he says this in the opening chapter of his first letter, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Then he goes on to say, Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. And then Peter wraps up this summary and he says, The word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. There's a little sample then of the kind of thing that is being preached, the kind of seed which is being put into people's hearts. Jesus says, and this is the expensive, precious, bought-in seed that the farmer is planting, either by his seed drill now, or... In the, in the image of the Palestine, the Roman Palestine farmer chucking the seed around, broadcasting it. And where does this seed end up? Well, it's scattered, it's not drilled, so with zero precision, some of it actually ends up on the path. This is the first of the soils in the parable, isn't it? And the path is compacted, it's hard, it's unyielding, it's been made like that by the passage of loads of feet, Lots of people's feet have pressed it down and that's, that's, uh, that's the first soil. And then the audience knew fine well what that actually represented. It re- represented an awful destination for the seed. There was infinitesimal chance for that seed to actually imbibe water and for the starch and for the enzymes inside the grain to hydrolyze for germination to take place. It just wasn't going to happen. It was a round grain or a sort of a rugby-shaped, ball-shaped grain. It's on a flat, polished surface. There's no contact. It's just not going to germinate. And hard on the heels of that, non-specified avian species come along, peck, 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 gone. And Jesus says this represents complete failure to understand the gospel and it's promptly followed by the birds pecking it up and it's just gone. The devil, says Jesus, snatches away the word. Now, a lot of you will be familiar with the letters, uh, the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis where a senior devil is writing to his, uh, to, his, um, to his nephew, to a junior devil, and he's giving him some coaching tips on how to, how to uh, steer his patient away from the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the devil is very clever, and the, ver- the devil is very, 
resourceful and ingenious in the way he tries to steer us away and to peck up that word which has been planted in our hearts. So make sure it's not snatched away. Make sure you know what the gospel is. And make sure also that what you are believing actually is the, the gospel. Um, back in the 1800s, um, in seed uh, corn growing parts of East Anglia, there were examples of whole populations of villages which suddenly died unaccountably. Mass death. And the reason for it was that there was a fungus which had got into the wheat called bunt of wheat. It's a seed-borne fungus and it, it uh, pollutes the ears and turns the ears, uh, instead of being nice little packages of carbohydrates, into little packages of highly toxic mycotoxins. And it came about because of the weather condition, but the real problem was this tiny, tiny spore which polluted the grain at the time of planting. It was a seed-borne fungus. And it manifested, manifested itself, it grew up, the wheat grew up perfectly okay, and wasn't until harvest time that this pollutant ended up in the milling, and then into the bread, and then it killed, actually, sub substantial numbers of people. And this was pre the invention of seed treatment and so forth, which, which wiped out the problem. But the illustration is very clear and that is be careful that what you're believing is actually the gospel. There are lots of pollutants in our world which will pollute the gospel, which add something to the gospel. Listen to what I am saying and check the gospel that I am or anybody else is telling you with your New Testament. Make sure that what you're hearing is the gospel and that there isn't some little spore, some little pollutant in there which will produce the bunt, the pollutant which renders the grain worthless and what's more than worse, worthless actually harmful. So in short, so far as our treatment of the path is don't be path, okay? Okay, enough said. Now, if you go, um, if you take the A420 away from Oxford down towards Swindon, you'll come to a village called Kingston Bagpews. Next door to Kingston Bagpews is a village called Southmoor. You, if you know the area, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. Now, there's some land at, at Southmoor with which I'm extremely familiar. And it's, uh, it's land which, which cultivates pretty easily. Um, it's land which you can plant pretty easily. And after you've planted it in the, in the, in the autumn, before very long, in uh, early early November, late October, you can see a nice encouraging green haze of young uh, wheat plants emerging. But when there is a period of dry weather, the, um, the Achilles heel of this ground becomes apparent. At a depth of about 8 to 12 inches, varying a bit across the field, there is a shelf of carboniferous limestone that goes all the way underneath this land. And what it means is, this, this shelf of rock is very unfractured, what it means is that it's a beautiful example of the stony ground. It's incredibly shallow, really. And the grain will grow. When Jesus, by the way, when he says it has no root, he doesn't mean that it's got no root. What it means is that the root is not able to get moisture. 
if I can take you back to um, if I can take you back to GCSE or O levels if you're old like me you've got a seed it produces a radical a baby root a plumule baby leaf and those things develop then into into leaves and, and roots respectively and the process by which the water enters the root is a process called osmosis thank you and then, uh, then the water moves up the plant to the leaf and it leaves the leaf by a process called transpiration, did I hear? Very good. Oh man, you are so good. Um, but there's an upward movement of moisture from the soil to the, to, the, to, the atmo- to the atmosphere by the means I've just described. And if there's no water underneath, if there's a big shelf of limestone underneath, that water's not going to get up and it seriously compromises the potential of that crop. And Jesus uses this description of a rocky, uh, stony soil to warn us against the danger of superficiality. There is a cost in being a Christian. And when Jesus talks about the need for wholeheartedness, and for self-sacrifice and for endurance and for stamina in the Christian life he uses very, very extreme language and terminology and I'm going to read some some of it in Luke chapter 14 he says this, I'm going to read it large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children his brothers and sisters Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross, something which meant that you were going to be executed, he cannot, and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate a cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying... This fellow began to build and he was not able to finish. Or, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. There's strong language used by Jesus to underline the necessity for wholehearted endurance. When trouble or persecution comes, Jesus says when he's talking in the parable, he says because of the word, he quickly falls away. There's unpopularity sometimes associated with being a Christian and it's, it's foolish of us to think that it's all going to be a bed of roses because it won't. In our culture, we don't know very much about overt, nasty persecution. Plenty of places in our world are. And the, input, the inbox of my computer is just full on the internet, my emails, about examples of believers who are not having it like we are. They are not. They are having a very, very difficult time. And that is the kind of heat and persecution that Jesus is warning about in this um, in this example about rocky soils, we, we, we are people to be who, who, who are to be people who, who can sustain the word. And Jesus is asking and demanding wholeheartedness. If you, um, 
draw a line from the River Humber to the Severn Estuary. There's a line, I guess, and everything to that line, to the southeast of that line, if you can visualise a map of, of, of Britain, everything to the southeast of that line is largely, pretty, pretty crude terms, but largely that's where the main wheat growing area in, in Britain is. Now, modern agriculture puts the seed in the ground in the autumn, largely. And there is a pest for winter wheat which has beautiful adaptation to be a nuisance to wheat growers and it's called black grass. People will laugh when they hear me say black grass because it's all I witter on about. The black grass, Allopicurus myosuroides, slender foxtail, is a wonderfully adapted uh, pest for, for wheat. It completes its life cycle inside the life cycle of the wheat. So after the wheat is planted, it germinates, and before the wheat is harvested, it sets seed, drops it on the ground to infest the following crop. And it's wonderful at pinching all of the resources, all of the nitrate, all of the space, all of the water, just everything. And I have seen examples of black grass infestation and despite my best efforts from my, from my farming clients where it's killed out the crop completely and there's no wheat there at all. It's that bad. Now, okay, that's, that's, um, that's black grass um, and it's the weed that I deal with. But Jesus talks about, uh, in the parable, he talks about the thorns. Well, thorns are weeds, black grass weeds, they're interchangeable. A weed is a plant growing in the, in the wrong place. And what is Jesus talking about? These things which pinch the resources from the soil. Soil is otherwise good, good ground, we can assume. And he says this, he says, the cares of this life. And the cares of this life are, are I would take it, things which aren't in and of themselves wrong. They're not sins, they're not bad. They are normal things to be worrying and thinking about. But they've expanded to absorb the resources which should otherwise be going into fruitfulness. There's uh, a stupid joke that I heard. Um, you can laugh if you want to. <laughs> I haven't told you it yet. Um, apparently men uh, at the dinner table have... Um, three topics of conversation apart from the food uh, it's work and sports and politics and women at the dinner table have seven topics of conversation and it goes like this it's relationships relationships <laughs> now all of those eleven topics okay, are the cares of this life Okay, you've got to talk about your work. You've got, well, you've got to, you know, you don't want to talk about sport, especially when England being completely shooed at cricket by the never I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, sport, nothing wrong with it. But you know people, and so do I, for whom sport has become their god. And it blots out everything else. I mean, their rugby is their king. That's all, and they come back smashed up with their fingers dislocated and awful wounds because of stupid game that their father's taught them how to play and they really look an awful state and it's obsessing them and if the cat fits you can wear it Toby um, 
the effect of these cares is to hinder and prevent fruitfulness. When I was a parent of, of young children, I viewed the next bit that Jesus says is a threat, as something which just, there's no chance of it ever worrying me, the deceitfulness of wealth. I thought it was a snare, it would it'd never affect me. Chance would be a fine thing, I thought. Come on, bring it on! You know, that's some of that. The Holy Grail of paying off my mortgage, it glimmered like a, like a beacon afar, calling me on. You know, when you get there, you will enjoy these wonderful sunlit uplands of freedom and prosperity, which is hogwash, because when you get there, your kids are at university and they use all the money, okay? <laughs> but I can still see it in myself, you know. Um, rather more frequent checks on the FTSE 100 index, you know, oh, what's it doing? Um, actually checking on the pound against the euro, um, looking in um, estate agents, wherever one happens to be, just having a look, you know. And I can see these are just little clues in myself to know that, you know, it's there, the danger is there, that that, the deceitfulness of riches, it is highly mendacious. Money and, and its effects on people's lives, and I see it, in business it's, it's very very distorting and so far as fruit to God is concerned it's sadly too often to know where the fruitfulness has been lost in people's lives so what is it that constitutes good soil well it's a balanced combination of sand, silt and clay particles reasonable level of organic matter active iron exchange good levels of nitrate, phosphate and potash good drainage um, pH a little bit on the, on the alkaline side of neutral and a low weed burden in fact what good soil is is something that the sower had been working at for years to produce didn't happen by itself. It wasn't an accident. It needed to be produced. And his audience would have known that. His audience, the audience that Jesus was speaking to would have known that. And I want to say this, that if you're producing fruit today, it's because the sower has been working on you. He's been preparing you. He's been getting you ready to produce fruit to his glory. The message of the kingdom, you've understood it. It's taken root in your life and it's bearing fruit. And what levels of fruitfulness are produced? Well, there's three mentioned in, in our story. There's 100, is it 160 and 30? Well, they're different, aren't they? So the point that I'd like to make is that if you see yourself as a humble little private, you know, bog-standard Christian just bearing a little bit of fruit and you see somebody who's busting and booming along zillions of ministries massive output of service to God well, look at them and think of yourself as you're of no worth you are of worth you are fruitful and you're part of God's you're, you're part of God's harvest if that's what you're producing and similarly if you're a if you're a top-flight Christian and you are one of those people who are you know really by God's grace, producing lots and lots of output to his glory. Well, 
you know, you're valuable, but so's a 30. And if you're in the middle, you're a 60. Well, it's not quite in the middle, is it? But you know what I mean. Is it? No, it's not. Um, not math's not good. But you know what I mean. If you're a middling, middle-ranking Christian, and you know, we're all valuable, and we're all, uh, 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 we're all people that God wants, and we're all, we're, it's, it's fruitfulness, it's all fruitfulness, which is part of the harvest, which goes to make the provision. Now, it isn't spelt out in the story, but um, the audience that Jesus was speaking to would have assumed this. Every farmer, the sower included, is an interventionist. That weedy soil that he's talking about, he's not going to leave it like that. He is going to fallow it and he's going to cultivate it to get rid of those weeds and to make it into productive ground. And the rocky ground, the ground that's got no depth of soil, he's going to intervene in that. It's going to get compost. It's going to get manure. That big shelf of underlying hardness of, of that carboniferous life, that's going to get busted up. Even the path is not beyond redemption. If the farmer purposes it, even that can end up being busted up and cultivated and turned into productive ground. And the truth about God is that he does give us opportunities and time opportunities and time to change and I pray that he'll do his own work in each of us to produce fruit for his own glory and our final song is one which has got a verse in it which celebrates God who gives us time to change. Is it on that slide? So what's the next one? There you go. Line number three. Wonderful grace that gives me the time to change washes away the stains that once covered me.